Welcome everyone to the Shared Ireland podcast series. Today we are in Stormont Buildings um, and our guest was briefly First Minister in 2011 while Martin McGuinness ran for the Irish Presidency. He was Minister for Education from 2011 to 2016 and has been an MLA since 2003 for the Upper Band area. It gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to introduce Mr John O'Dowd. Welcome John. Hello. John, um, if I was to ask you to make me a bechamel, what would you say to that and how would you go about it? <laughs> you obviously know I worked for many years as a chef. Yes. I often refer to it as my real job. Uh, a bechamel is, is a white sauce made with a white roux, flour, butter, uh, <laughs> add milk, cloved onion. Uh, and there you go. You, pa- <laughs> you passed your exams with flying colours, John. <laughs> and you're also making me hungry. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, how long did you work as a chef for? For the best part of 20 years. Uh, right. When I left secondary school, I went to Newry Catering College and then worked out in industry uh, for the best part of 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike the images which is presented on, on television, mm-hmm. it's hot, heavy, hard work. And I'm not talking about politics, I'm talking about <laughs> cooking. Um, I, could but, imagine, I could imagine you being a Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> <laughs> I had my moments and I'm sure there's many a waiter or waitress out there who will, will testify to that. But I, I really enjoyed it, yeah. and it was great job satisfaction when you left a restaurant uh, after a night's work and customers stopped and thank you for the good meal they had, and it was great job satisfaction, great crack among uh, the crew you worked with, um, and you never know, I might end up back at it someday. So so what tempted you to politics? Was it the lure of more money? No, uh, I actually took a cotton money when I was <laughs> to politics, believe it or not. Uh, I was always interested in politics. Um, I, I came from a home. I didn't come from a Republican background. Uh, my father was a great debater, uh, uh, a rural, from a rural background. Uh, and in those days, people visited each other's homes and mm-hmm. the television was turned off and mm-hmm. uh, discussions were in the house of the politics of the day, of international politics, of society. And my, my father had a great flair uh, for debate. My mother had a great social conscience as well. Uh, what had been very... Uh, socially minded and, and helping out our neighbours and our, our family and friends and, and involving ourselves in the community in that way. So uh, again, my, my, my politics, my broad politics from my parents, uh, my republicanism comes from events, uh, from the history we live in, from a keen interest in reading history and, and living through uh, an era where, where politics has been played out on our streets and our television screens every night. Um, I, I lived in an area which seen the worst of sectarian violence. Uh, as a young boy, I was an altar boy, and, and uh, my earliest memories are of officiating at, at my neighbour's funerals who had been murdered by loyalists. So, uh, advanced nearby made me into politics, I suppose. Okay, okay. So that would have shaped your early years, mm, what yeah. you witnessed and what you seen, mm. as you said, on TV, and, yeah. and unfortunately more closer to yeah. home. Yeah, okay. Yeah, without doubt. Tell me this, just um, kind of, Boris Johnson has been um, elected, or yeah, I suppose elected, mm. is that the right word to use, <laughs> um, as the new Prime Minister of England. Um, can Boris be neutral given the fact that he spoke at the DUP conference not long ago, not that long ago, and I suppose can he be Chief Brexiteer and co-guarantor of a Good Friday Agreement all in the one package? How does that make you and Sinn Féin feel while possibly going into future negotiations with him or any future Secretary of State? 
Well, it can't be both. It can't be chief Brexiteer uh, and lead a low deal campaign and be co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement because they're both contradictory positions. Mm -hmm. Speaking at the DUP conference, um, I think was self-serving for Boris Johnson, but may have implications around his role as future uh, British Prime Minister. The old saying goes that it takes a wise man to act the fool. <laughs> and for all our sakes, is I hope Boris Johnson's acting. Is, is Boris a very wise man then? <laughs> well, let's hope that he is because his performance to date would dictate to me or suggest to me that we're in for a very bumpy and difficult ride over the next number of months and years, depending how long his premiership lasts. Um, this is now our third British Prime Minister in a little over in three years. We have a David Cameron, Theresa May and now Boris Johnson. Uh, and Brexit has sealed the fate of the previous two and it may well seal the fate of Boris Johnson. But uh, Boris Johnson is going to have to realise that he's now dealing in the international political arena, both in terms of Brexit and also in terms of the Good Friday Agreement, because the Good Friday Agreement is an internationally binding document. Uh, we will test him. We will see uh, if he's prepared to work the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement to ensure that everyone has a fair play here, that equality is to the, to the centre. Uh, and we will await the outcome of that. Um, it's not up to us to choose who the British Prime Minister is, though I would like to think that the people of Britain could choose their own Prime Minister. We have now... 160 odd thousand Tory members who are mainly white, middle to upper class, middle aged, who have chosen their leader. It's, it's not to me how democracy should work. Yeah, I heard Jeremy Corbyn alluding to mm. something similar there a few days ago. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it fits in with the British Constitution or the unwritten British Constitution that the leader of the largest party uh, becomes the next Prime Minister. Uh, though with a majority, I think, now of two. Um, mm -hmm. After the resignations. Yeah. British politics is in a mess. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is the backdrop to a significant number of our own political problems. I think in terms of the DUP's relationship with Boris Johnson, as happened with Theresa May, it laid in tears. I suppose you just mentioned there with a majority of maybe two mm -hmm. or a very slim anyway, that ultimately strengthens the DUP's hand mm -hmm. on paper yeah. over there while negotiating with Boris mm -hmm. now, doesn't it? On paper it does. But reflect back to two and a half years ago, or just over three years ago, when Theresa May took over from David Cameron and, and the DUP did their deal with her after the 2017 elections. Mm -hmm. There was talk of strengthening of the union, of a significant power brokerage for the DUP. When Theresa May came to the reality or the realisation that she had to do a deal with the European Union on the European Union's terms, the DUP was dumped unceremoniously don't uh, and we've seen a very fractious period there for about a, a year with the relationship in the DUP and uh, the leader of the Tory party went downhill rapidly that same scenario is in place for Boris Johnson mm -hmm. Boris Johnson has to do deal with the EU and it'll be largely on the EU's terms because they hold most of the cards uh, so Boris Johnson's going to have to make a decision does he drive the British economy over the cliff uh, because uh, the DUP don't want to do a deal which includes a backstop, or does he do a deal with the EU? I suspect he'll do a deal with the EU on the EU's terms. So the DUP have told us they have a lot of sway with the Tories. Um, I, I don't accept that that is uh, the case. They're also creating enemies in Westminster. 
Uh, and that can be seen by the recent legislation passed through Westminster about its relation to equal marriage, uh, abortion, uh, where there's people lining up to have swings at the DUP. So this era of politics, you always have to judge politics over uh, what impact it's going to have over a period of time, whether that's a year or five years or ten years. And I think the DUP's relationship with the Tories over this last number of years is going to create huge problems for them over the next five to ten years. Mm-hmm. They have created more enemies in Westminster than they have created friends. Mm-hmm. What would you say, John, to people that would criticise Sinn Féin for not uh, taking up your seats mm-hmm. at Westminster and to kind of combat what the DUP's do? Well, we stand on an abstentionist ticket. So those people who vote for us know when they go into the polling station, that they're voting for an abstentionist party. Uh, and whether Sinn Féin votes would have made a difference over the last two years, 18 months, is debatable because there's, I think there is a validity in the argument that if Sinn Féin went into Westminster, there are certain individuals and parties that would vote opposite to what Sinn Féin voted for because they wouldn't want to be associated with Sinn Féin. Yeah. But what always amazes me about this debate is this. They're asking us to go in to Westminster and on our first day go in and tell a lie. Mm-hmm. Because you were asked to go in and swear an oath of allegiance to the Queen of England and that would be a lie. Now politics isn't a bad enough state and the reputation of politicians isn't bad enough state. Without us committing to do, the first thing we're going to do for you folks is we're going to walk into Westminster we're going to tell a barefaced lie that our allegiance is to the Queen of England when it's not. Yeah. So that, that, that in itself sort of that in itself is a huge barrier to me saying how could you end abstentionism and go in and do that? Mm-hmm. But power is not necessarily I and mean, that's why I was saying earlier about judging what happens in politics over a period of time or a year, five or ten years time. The wrangles in Westminster are as a result of decisions being taken elsewhere. The the negotiations between the British government and the EU uh, were were taken elsewhere other than Westminster, except they have to be ratified in Westminster, and I believe they will be. But the the lobbying and the decision-making that we did in Dublin had an influence on that. Martina Anderson and our MEP team in uh, Brussels and Strasbourg played a blinder. They, they, they sat down with delegation after delegation from each European country and outlined them in great detail the implications for the Good Friday Agreement. That had a, uh, had a huge influence on the position the European Union eventually took. And it was Martina Anderson who inserted at the last minute in negotiations that the Good Friday Agreement needs to be protected in all its parts to the European Parliament. So the current problems in Westminster have been created elsewhere. Uh, and we didn't set out to create problems in Westminster. We set out to create uh, a lasting solution to someone else's problem, not being Brexit. Uh, so we have used our political influence where it is needed uh, in other institutions around these islands and elsewhere. What are the chances of an old deal Brexit, do you think? And what would the implications of that be for us here? They, they are, the chances of an old deal Brexit are significant because they, they are the only legal uh, solution on the table at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. So as we, I think someone said to me, or heard on the radio today, is around 100 days to Halloween, which is frightening in itself, mm-hmm. uh, as the year travels on. But that's 100 days till the UK drags us out of the European Union against our will, and potentially with a no deal. Most economists, if not all economists, have uh, asserted that's going to be very bad for the economy. Uh, and I see no reason to disagree with them. 
even those who support a no deal option talk about a wobble in the economy and when you hear a wobble in the economy that means that uh, those who are in low incomes those who are in middle incomes suffer the most and those who can afford a wobble get on with life that's right and that's exactly what's going to happen in terms of a no deal brexit there will be huge implications for a number of years but particularly for the north and particularly for the island of ireland our agri sector uh, our business sector cross cross border uh, transport, cross-border trade, all is going to take a huge hit uh, for an ego trip for a number of Tory MPs who want to, and they support the right of the people of England and Wales to leave the European Union. They voted for it, fair play them. I support them. They have a democratic right to do so. They do not have a democratic right to drag us out with them. So no deal is a reality until it is not a reality. And we have to do everything within our power to make sure it doesn't become a reality. But it's wonderful the choice of words that you use there. And mm. when you hear them yeah. put in that way, it's true. You support the democratic right of the people of mm. England and Wales. Yes. And um, the so-called union is mm. made up of Scotland and Northern Ireland as well. Mm. As you rightfully yeah. pointed out there, by not mentioning we didn't choose to leave yeah. and neither did our neighbours mm. in Scotland. So, you know, is that democratic? It's not democratic. And, and Brexit has exposed the undemocratic nature of the, of the union. Because the power block within the union, and always has been the case, lies in England. Whether the democratic power block, the economic power block, whatever it may be, has lay in England. So the union has always functioned on the basis of what are the benefits for those people who live in England. And... Those of us who live in the north here, or our Scottish cousins, or our Welsh cousins, are secondary and third uh, to those considerations. Indeed, the drive to leave Brexit was driven by English nationalism. Mm-hmm. And I have no objection to English nationalism, but I do have an objection to far-right English nationalism, as I would have far-right Irish nationalism or any other form of nationalism. It was driven by that. It was driven by their needs and considerations. So... Brexit has come about by for a variety of reasons, but none of it has come about taking into consideration to the people and the needs of the people of Ireland. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned Martina Anderson there. Um, the North now has two pro Remain mm-hmm. MEPs in Naomi Long and mm-hmm. Martina Anderson. How can maximum leverage be gained from this? Do you think moving forward, regardless of whether it's a deal Brexit, no mm-hmm. deal Brexit, backstop, whatever? Well, I think there was a very, very clear message sent to Europe uh, by the recent European elections. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and citizens set out to make a choice. Um, They made a significant choice in sending two pro-Remain MEPs back to to Brussels. And Europe has picked up on that message. Uh, Obviously, Naomi Long and Sinn Féin have political differences, but we, we can look for each other's political differences or we can look for a way of commonality. And our approach is to look where we have commonality in common cause. And we will work along with the Alliance Party uh, and others mm-hmm. uh, to make sure the message is driven home loud and clear to the European Parliament, which is a key player in the European negotiations. Uh, and as I said earlier, when Martina lodged that line into the European Parliament proposal that the Good Friday Agreement should be protected in all its parts was a significant gain. We will work with Naomi and others to ensure that uh, the European Parliament plays a full role in protecting the Good Friday Agreement in all its parts. Uh, I note that there's already been a meeting, a joint meeting with Michel Bonnier, mm-hmm. uh, which was significant in itself. And, and he's a cute enough operator uh, and a long-time diplomat 
to pick up on the message that two return MPs were sent back in. What's your assessment, John, of the result in the Euro elections here, and I suppose in particular in regards to Sinn Féin? Um, did some Sinn Féin voters give their vote to Naomi for tactical reasons? And I suppose I appreciate Martina got elected and all the rest, but in reality she got elected in the last place. Mm -hmm. um, what have you taken from that and what lessons has Sinn Féin learned from that, if any? I, I think the... The European election and indeed the council elections um, are still under analysis. Um, was there Sinn Féin people who voted for Naomi Long? Quite possibly so. Uh, I think there was tactical voting, probably on a scale we haven't seen before in elections here, uh, across the board, because Brexit was seen as such a huge issue. Many people seen Martina as safe and home on the boat. Mm -hmm. uh, and there could have been a case where people went out and used their first preference for Naomi. Now, obviously Naomi got votes uh, on, in our own right and our, on our own style and our own dynamics. She's a very capable yeah, uh, politician, uh, without doubt, an articulate, capable politician. So we, we'll have to analyse all that. Uh, my view is is much broader than, than simple narrow party politics in this one. There was two return MPs sent back to Europe. That's a massive political message, as we discussed earlier. Uh, Martina was elected last, but she topped the poll. When it comes to PR elections, I always say it, it doesn't matter who tops the poll or who gets elected when. You're, it's when you get elected and what you do with your mandate after you've been elected. And I have no doubt that Martina will use her mandate very, very effectively. Uh, the European elections coming on the heels of the council elections wasn't ideal. They were common a difficult political period uh, on this island in terms of the executive being down um i think there's dissatisfaction with politics to a certain degree though the other side of that is i've never seen people as politically engaged mm -hmm. you know politics isn't simply the assembly or the executive politics is a much broader subject uh, and so that frustration uh covers a number of areas some people want the assembly and the executive back up other people tell me do not go back. Others people want it up on the on the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, and that's mm -hmm. what we're working towards. I spoke recently with um, Sinn Féin Senator Rose Conway Walsh, and um, I appreciate this isn't your um, constituency, mm -hmm. shall I say, what I'm going to ask you about now, but I suppose Sinn Féin are an All-Ireland Party. How do you uh, analyse the results in the local elections in the South? where Sinn Féin lost possibly up to yeah. half their local councillors. I, I see the south and the west and mm -hmm. north of Ireland, all my constituents. Yes. It's, 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 we are an all-Ireland party and I, I take responsibility as a party member for success and failure in any part of the mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a bad day out. Mm -hmm. um, there was a number of factors at play, I think. We had a great day out in 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, we increased our mandate by almost 50% I think in terms of seats taken. Mm -hmm. um, Ireland has changed over that five years. Uh, economically and socially it has changed though did, not to the dance at all. Did not move with the times then? Well, why were these councillors then ultimately dumped? Well I'm not sure if it's a case of people went out and voted against Sinn Féin. It's a case of people went out and voted for someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a slight nuance in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, where people, maybe the message of the other parties was more receptive to where Ireland is in 2018 than where it was in 2014. Mm -hmm. 
there has been economic growth in the South, but not for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's still people, significant proportions of the population being left behind. And that population, that section of the population, continue to feel disenfranchised and perhaps didn't see enough significant change over those five years mm-hmm. uh, for them to mo- be motivated to go out and vote again. So we're, we're analysing all those things uh, as to why we didn't have the election we wanted, but we're still a major political force in the same. Mm-hmm. Between 9 and 10% of the population came out and voted for us. Uh, recent opinion polls for what they're worth are putting us in around 14%. So Sinn Féin by no means is a dumb force in the South. We will continue to be uh, a strong voice in the Dáil and councils uh, and offer a radical alternative to what the establishment parties are saying. But we have to be relevant. Uh, and that's the analysis we have to do now. We have to make sure we're relevant to the constituents and, and to people and we're giving a voice to people, which is effective. Okay. Just then, um, I suppose moving on to Stormont here, what would you consider Sinn Féin's biggest success from power sharing at Stormont? Bringing the DUP and rejectionist unionism into a power sharing institution. That... that that achievement in 2007 should not be underestimated. Uh, holding that together uh, for 10 years was a huge achievement and a lot of commitment from Martin McGuinness in and around that uh, was a huge achievement. Uh, and despite the frustrations that people may feel over uh, the lack of delivery at times from the institutions, our, the North has changed significantly over those last 10, 12 years. And the institutions in place played a part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in the absence of the institutions over the last 10 to 12 years, we could be in a very difficult and different place. Mm-hmm. So the, all those things, I think, have been achievements and worthwhile for us being in the institutions for that period of time. And saying that Martin McGuinness made the right decision in 2017 to bring them down. You mentioned there, John, previously mm-hmm. that um, you speak to some of your members mm-hmm. and some of the people that vote mm-hmm. for you in the party that they don't want you to go back mm-hmm. in the storm. Why do you think that is? Uh, I'll tell you why I think it is. There was a much talk at the time on in 2007 that there was a huge compromise for unionism to go into power with Sinn Féin. And there was a lot of concentration on that. What people fail to recognise is that there's been a huge compromise by Republicans to go into institutions, to name, go into Stormont. What are so these compromises? Well, even, even the very symbolism of Stormont. Uh, without being personal, I, I had a couple of uncles who shall remain nameless, and I brought them up to Stormont, and they're in their 80s and 90s, and I couldn't get over how uncomfortable they were in the place. They, they, those guys lived through the worst era of Stormont. And even now they were uncomfortable in the place. And I, I was seeing it maybe for the first time through somebody else's eyes. Well, it wasn't the first, but seeing it through yeah. somebody else's eyes at that time. And that, that gave me a strong realisation. And I knew it was a compromise. It was even a compromise within myself to go to go into the institutions. That we had made a huge compromise. And these two guys aren't Republicans. So we made a huge compromise to go into the institutions. Uh, along with the DUP and others. So that was a compromise in itself. We had... Uh, and Republicans had campaigned for United Ireland. Now that campaign continues. In my opinion, the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement are a stepping block towards that. And the Good Friday Agreement offers. We're going uh, to just touch on that shortly. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's all uh, that's all within the mindset and, and the framework uh, of Republicans. So 
a compromise it was. And I think some Republicans are still having difficulty getting their head around us being within those institutions. Uh, and they would reflect back and say, well, nothing, or you just didn't achieve everything you wanted to set out over those last 10 years. And that's true. But we, sh- we, we achieved significant progress in other areas. The others tell me to go back in on the, t- on the terms of the Good Friday. But John, can I just yeah. interrupt there? If you achieved significant mm. progress yeah. in many, why then ultimately did Martin and Sinn Féin bring the storm back? Well, let's, let's reflect on that period. You had the RHA scandal um, emerging and raging at that time uh, with allegations of corruption at the heart of government. Just when you mention yeah. RHA, what's mm. the latest in that, do you know? Well, like others were waiting on the report being published. Um, it was expected in the spring, it's now expected in the autumn. I, one of the things with these reports is when lawyers get involved, there can be significant delays. So I, I hope it is published as soon as possible, but that will ultimately be a decision for uh, Justice Cochran. But uh, so we had the RHI, we had the, and we have been attempting for years to get the DUP over the line in terms of the Irish language of rights and equality for a variety of sectors of the society, uh, for targeting socially and all those things. And all of that just came to head around that time, that the frustration uh, and the realisation had come to head that we weren't moving these people, the DUP, and there had to be a dramatic change, shift in mindset, both from them and us, around where these institutions were going. Uh, and they weren't delivering under the terms and principles of the Great Friday Games. So that's where the institutions collapsed. Uh, in a recent podcast interview with political commentator David McCann, he cited the example of the SNP at the Scottish Parliament. There's no way to a unity referendum that doesn't run through Stormont. That a majority voting in favour of a poll there couldn't be ignored by any British Secretary of State. Uh, to what extent would you agree with that assessment? Um, to a certain extent... Well, let's do it this way. The unionist majority went in March 2017. You know, when we talk about changes in these islands, if you had to say 10 years ago or 15 years ago, there won't be a unionist majority in Stormont. People would have laughed you out of the building. It's gone. Um, and I think that opens up a whole range of opportunities uh, for significant progressive change in this part of Ireland. But also... Uh, the potential for agreement to a border poll coming through Stormont. The difficulty is we can't get the British to outline exactly what is the criteria for a unity referendum. Uh, In the past, they've talked about opinion polls and various newspapers and this, that, the other, which has gone against uh, a wish for a unity referendum. We've had recent opinion polls which quite clearly suggest there should be a unity referendum. So it's tying the British down on what there should be in terms or what the conditions are for a unity poll. And I think the best way of doing that is, is to strengthen those the mandate of those who are in favour of Irish unity. Rather, obviously Sinn Féin and if there's others out there who are demanding Irish unity, then them as well. But will there be a vote in the Assembly for a unity referendum? Quite possibly there will be. And if it is passed, then it will prove quite difficult for, for the British government to refuse that. But democracy and the British government don't always go hand in hand. No, I suppose um, that possibly could be labelled. Okay. Um, <clears throat> do you think that the Irish government, there is an onus on them to produce like a, a white paper, like the Scottish mm. 
uh, people did I think they produced a document 670 pages long and um, when they had their failed attempt at independence some people say that that document was too weighty too heavy to rig for the ordinary man and woman on the street um, who should be leading this call for a future border poll do you think well the Irish government have to play a role in it um, I, I'm reluctant to say they should be leading it because by default they might lead it and it, it, it is lost by the wayside mm -hmm. the people should be leading it change in Ireland has always been driven by people's movements by mass movements by uh, the people who were left behind by the political class driving change so the people should lead it Mm -hmm. But the Irish government have a role to play on it. And yes, they should be producing. The Irish government should be persuaders for you now there. Jerry Adams often said, and, and has been quoted as saying, the British government should be persuaders for United Ireland. The Irish government should be persuaders for United Ireland as well. And be bringing forward uh, proposals and discussions and forums and for, for debate and discussion around Irish unity and how we get to a border poll what Irish unity will look like going into the future, as best as you can uh, judge on that, because Irish unity will be an evolving uh, form, will be an evolving society, it'll be a changing society. So nobody can turn around and say the blueprint and say, Irish unity is going to be A, B, C and D, and that'll be it for perpetuity. That isn't how the world works. But certainly the Irish government needs to be engaging nationally and internationally around the need for Irish unity and what Irish unity, what that vision may look like. Some people suggest that there's a danger the Irish government will only, I suppose, put their cards on the table after a border poll is mm. officially called, so they'll hold off for as long as they can. What do you what would you say to that? Well, the current Irish government may be in that position, but it depends on who the Irish government is. Mm. Okay. And you know, this is governments come and go and change. Uh, I thought it was significant that Leo Varadkar and the Thomas or Simon Coveney in their contest for the Fine Gael leadership talked about Irish unity mm -hmm. and their desire for Irish unity. And that, that wouldn't happen 10 years ago. It wouldn't happen five years ago, perhaps, in terms of Fine Gael. It reflects the, the growing sense and awareness, I think, within the population, within the people, that Irish unity is achievable. And political parties are now falling behind that. But let's... Who knows what the Irish government will look like in two years' time or five years' time or ten years' time? Just to be clear on this, John, mm. for our listeners, mm. um, Sinn Féin is calling for a border poll immediately, near enough, are they? Within the, the term of an assembly, we're calling for. Uh, we want to prepare for that border poll. We want to have a sensible and inclusive discussion around that. We want to avoid the mistakes that were made by the Brexit referendum. Uh, we want to have discussions with supporters and objectors to Irish unity leading up to a, a, a unity referendum, as we refer to it as. So yes, within the lifetime of an assembly, we want to see that uh, and avoid the mistakes that have been made elsewhere. So for, like an All-Ireland Forum would be a, a progressive first step, getting Fine Gael, Fine Gael Labour... SDLP, yourselves, DUP, UUP mm. and Alliance Greens, whoever wants to come round yeah. and sit round and have ongoing, I suppose, negotiations and talks. Well, maybe the negotiations might scare off some of the unionists, certainly discussions. Mm -hmm. Unionism needs to start thinking about what a united Ireland is going to look like, because the reality is, is you're going to be a united Ireland. Mm -hmm. Demographic and political change on this island dictates that's going to be the case, and unionism talks about the need to persuade or show a reason why the union 
uh, is the best way forward. Well, good luck to them with that. They've had 100 years to do it and they feel miserable. Mm-hmm. Now, they might pull something, uh, the, the rabbit out of the hat or whatever it may be, but they have 100 years, they feel miserable, and society and politics has moved on. Now, it can't move on without unionism, mm-hmm. but that doesn't give unionism a veto on change. Uh, and th- th- there's a fine line and a difference in that. So I-, I would like to see a forum where people can come, engage, discuss, throw ideas on the table, challenge each other, Around what it's going, what United Ireland or shape of United Ireland is going to be, and move towards uh, a, a unity referendum in the lifetime of the assembly. I appreciate you don't mm. work in speculation, mm. but if you will go with me on this mm. small journey, if you could possibly put yourself in unionism or loyalism's shoes for a moment here, mm. what do you believe? Because you must have heard, obviously, yeah. in the nature of your work, what do you believe will be their couple of biggest? fears and concerns around a future All-Ireland, New Ireland, call it mm. what you want. And how can you possibly help to alleviate them fears? Well, firstly, I would like to hear those from unionism, right? Uh, but I will speculate. I think it's loss of identity. Okay, so that would be their British culture, yes, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I think that's, that's a huge fear for them. Uh, also a fear of alienation and persecution. Right, if you don't mind, we'll take mm. that one first yeah. here. Would that be because they would possibly have this concern that maybe nationalism would do unto them what maybe they think that they did mm. unto nationalism? Would yes. that be a fair assumption? Yeah, I suppose it's a sense of there's losers and winners in, in that mindset and that after 100 years they have lost their union. So therefore, nationalists have won. That's the equation. Mm-hmm. But I think it fails to realise that, firstly, they have a role to play in shaping the United Ireland and should do so. And that any United Ireland would be a democratic uh, state where citizens would have votes, rights and entitlements. And this is where unionism has made a huge, huge mistake in objecting to a Bill of Rights. Because a Bill of Rights uh, would protect their rights as much as it protects anyone else's rights in law. So whatever political class came in, uh, unless they had a majority to overturn a Bill of Rights, which I don't think will come about, and unionism, political weight, would stop that happening. Uh, a Bill of Rights, a written constitution in a united Ireland would protect unionism as much as it would protect me. Mm-hmm. And that's where, that's where uh, we have to move to, where we have legally enforceable entitlements for citizens, including those who are British mm-hmm. uh, in a united Ireland. You mentioned your first um, one there about the loss of their um, identity, mm. which possibly would be their British mm. identity. How do you think you and Sinn Féin could help them um, understand that that wouldn't be the case? Well, again, they have to come forward with proposals as well as ourselves coming forward with proposals. Mm-hmm. I think unionism will find political allies in the United Ireland um, in terms of their political class. Fine Gael, for instance, uh, the Social Democrats, others being very close political allies of unionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that's about writing a strong constitution, protecting the rights of all citizens uh, on this island. Unionism being a political force within uh, any legislator or legislators on the island of Ireland moving forward where they would have a major political sway. You know, it could be easily argued that there's more chance of a unionist 
Stein party being in government in the United Ireland and the Rich Sinn Féin. Okay. People, you know, I think it'd be quite arrogant of Sinn Féin to believe that we will be uh, the, the lead party in the United Ireland. You know, the, the, the current opinion polls tell us that's not going to be the case. I think, I think to be honest mm. with you, that mm. would be one of the fears mm. that I have been um, told yeah. privately, yeah. I'm sure so of you, yeah. that one of unionism's biggest fears would be they have this perception that Sinn Féin would have wielded a lot of power in the New Ireland, yeah. and by that nature alone, that's enough to put them off nearly. Yeah, you know? but that, that's an understandable concern, trying to put myself in their shoes, but uh, Sinn Féin may or may not be in government when there's United Ireland on the first day. It may be in government and then out of government. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's, that's just the nature of how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. The electorate will decide who's in government and it'll be, no doubt, some form of coalition. And unionism's political strength would suggest to me that, and given their, their conservative nature, mm-hmm. uh, politically conservative nature, they have many uh, allies in, in the South to go into power with. Mm-hmm. Just, just again, keeping with trying to um, put yourself in unionism shoes here, bringing it closer to home to Stormont and I suppose the ongoing talks. Um, what do you think their biggest fears are of an Irish Language Act? And what, if anything, can you, Sinn Féin and supporters, I guess, of an Irish Language Act do to help alleviate any of these fears and concerns that they have? Because a lot of people would say, you know, a language can't hurt anybody. But obviously there's a perception there that this would be the start of something more um, bigger, a momentum, mm. as they would say. Well, they haven't given me any rational, in my opinion, any rational argument against the Irish Language Act, other than that bilingual road signs would cause confusion. I'm just back in Catalonia where the road signs are trilingual in some places. Uh, I didn't appear to see too many confused drivers about the place. Mm-hmm. So... That's the argument that was being presented to us. Um, if, if there's rational concerns about the Irish Language Act, then they need to be presented and they'll be talked through. Uh, bilingualism, uh, trilingualism, it, it's a common feature of many states across the world. I remember, and I always tell this story, when I was chair of the Public Accounts Committee in the Assembly many, many years ago, my counterpart in Wales was a Welsh Conservative. And he, if you were in a room of 100 people, and this may not be politically correct to say, but if you're in a room of 100 people, you say, point out the Tory, this guy was the Tory. Right? Okay. But me and him struck up a, a good working relationship, and we ran a number of conferences together, and we would have conversations and talk about each other. And at this stage, there was no immediate prospect of an Irish Language Act coming through. And I was talking to him about how Welsh language had been received in Wales. And, and he told me something which has always struck with me. He said, John, 10 years, and this would have been 20 years ago, uh, if I had have spoken Welsh at my party conference, I would have been booed off the stage. If I don't speak Welsh now, I would be booed off the stage. So that was the journey in Wales that had went through. Okay. There was resistance to a Welsh language act. Uh, very, very strong and vitriolic resistance to a Welsh language act. Mm-hmm. It came through on a greater understanding and ownership across a wide political spectrum came about for Welsh. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that's going to be the same place here. When there is an Irish Language Act, when language, language becomes visible and used, um, it's not going to be seen as they own that or, or they own that. 
It's we own it. In terms of when I say we, I mean our society owns it. Is there a perception, and maybe I'm sure you would accept this, mm. uh, maybe not by design, but the Irish Language Act, same as same-sex marriage mm. and other um, sticking points at the moment, has nearly become, in many people's eyes, like a red line uh, used as a political football nearly. Mm. I'm not saying that was by design, yeah. but uh, can anybody really roll back from this now and save face? Yes, um, we've had huge obstacles to cross in the past. And I talked earlier in this interview about compromises on the on behalf of Republicans and compromises on behalf of unionism, doing things we thought we would never do, uh, entering through the doors of storm, all about a completely different storm than it was uh, in the 1960s or seven, early 70s, or maybe, uh, and unionism sharing power with their arch enemy in terms of Republicans. Yes. There's a, there, there is a challenge around rights and the Good Friday Agreement, when the, when you get drill into the core of the Good Friday Agreement, it's about a rights-based society. Mm-hmm. Irishness, the Irish identity, the Irish language, uh, the Irish culture, um, being Irish in this part of Ireland has been subdued for over 100 years. And slowly but surely, people, um, through rights and demands and coming together have brought our culture our, uh, to the forefront and there's still battles to be fought over that and language is part of that battle now Sinn Féin doesn't own the Irish language any more than the DUP own the English language no because Linda Irvine yeah. which we spoke yeah. to recently as well yeah. I think she holds 15 classes a week yeah. in East Belfast which uh-huh. I suppose would be traditionally known as Loyalist Heartland yeah. And by your own admission, I think she told me that 70% of the people that attend come from a unionist loyalist mm. background. Yeah, so the, 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 there's no logical reason to object to the Irish language. There's political reasons. There is ill-informed reasons, all those things. And we'll try our best to work our way through all those things with the DUP. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there has to be a recognition of the Irish language on the island of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Is there a role for civic society in shaping a new Ireland, John? Without doubt. Recently, um, I suppose, nationalism has mm. um, spoken and the hill, which I believe was deemed to be a pretty um, successful mm-hmm. event in the Waterfront Hall, I believe in January of this yes, year, uh-huh. where maybe upwards to 2,000 people attended. And you had um, political parties from all across the island. Yeah. Um, were you at that event and what did I, you think of it? I, I wasn't at the event. Um, though obviously reports and media reports and even talking to people about the event was a hugely impressive and significant event. There, there wouldn't be a peace process without civic society. Uh, there wouldn't have been a political process without civic society. Um, and one of the things I think that happened to our political process and why it ran into such significant difficulties is that when the institutions were formed in 2007 and Martin and Ian went into power together, civic society took a step back because people believed peace had been achieved, that the goal had been achieved. Now, some of the civic society may quite rightly argue that they were pushed back rather than stepped back. So whichever dynamic took place, in whatever scenario it took place, uh, politics or the, the political institutions were left on their own. And I think that was the start of of the decline of the political institutions because we need civic society to play its role, both in a challenge function and a supportive function. 
um, around politics and politicians and all those sorts of things. But uh, the day and hour that politics becomes simply the institutions, then politics is failed. John, we're um, getting pushed for time here. Mm. Before we go, who do you admire? Who do I admire? Mm. I'm not really into uh, individualism um, and people. I, 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 I've met my heroes. I, I met Martin McGuinness, who was a hero of mine as a child okay. and, and, and as a young person when I grew up. And, and he continues to be my hero. Yeah. Um, a huge loss to politics, a huge loss to uh, society. And I, always, I was fortunate enough to meet Martin with many foreign delegations and when you've seen the admiration of the foreign delegations for Martin you realise the presence of the person you were in so it's, it's, I don't other than I don't really get into individuals I admire people who step forward and stand up for what they believe in and that includes people who I disagree with yeah, uh, yeah it's uh, easy to sit and criticise yeah, but uh, it takes guts to put your head above yeah. the parapet and put I suppose your face on an election poster regardless of what yeah, party you think I doubt you know I have over the years, I think that's one of the benefits of the political institutions. We have made connections and friendships with, with political unionism that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise and try to get an understanding and hopefully they try to get an understanding of me. So I respect people who step forward, not only for politics, whether it's in trade unionism or community work or whatever it may be. It, it takes an effort to leave your family home and go and deal with issues in the broader community. No doubt. So I, that, that, I admire people who step forward and stand up for what they believe in okay sell me on our listeners Sinn Féin well Sinn Féin was sold to me as the voice of an idea right and that idea evolves over time I, I believe that Sinn Féin is a radical voice on the island of Ireland which has the potential along with others to deliver a united Ireland but a united Ireland that has at its very very heart a rights-based society. And that has almost become a cliche now, a rights-based society. But you only understand the importance of rights until you go looking for them. And you see what their rights are there and you go looking for them. You understand then the importance of them. And the longer I've been a, a legislator and a, an elected representative, I understand that more. So Sinn Féin is, is, is a radical voice. And there's other radical voices out there. Uh, and I suppose what I would say about selling Sinn Féin is that Sinn Féin is, is a party in my, in my mind which has, has, is coming to a place where we don't look for what differences we have with other political parties. We look for what we have in common with other political parties and try to deliver uh, on a common platform. Okay. We ask this question, finally, to all our guests. Mm. Um, if you could invite three people, alive or dead, to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why Joe? <laughs> <laughs> I always dread this question. You should you should have these you should have these uh, always prepared uh, and answered. <laughs> yes, have <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a list uh, sitting uh, alive or dead to a fictional dinner party. Yes, three people. Oh, now you put me on. <laughs> what? Well, I suppose I suppose the, the the standard answer is Muhammad Ali, isn't it? It is. Correct. <laughs> well, it, it was a boxer in my younger days, right? Oh, were you? Yes, a chef on a boxer. But it, because of my height. And the oh, fact that I couldn't fight, right. <laughs> I had to give that up. Uh, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Um, who, who do I invite to a dinner party? I honestly don't know. Right. Because uh, I, I have a, a wide, wide variety of interests and views and I would sit down and read 
books on all sorts of strange subjects and uh, watch all programs with all sorts of strange things and that would be my interest I'll tell you what I'll, I'll give yeah. you I'll give you yeah. a get out of jail free yeah. card here and I'll ask you another one give some advice to a 20 year old John O'Dowd now knowing what you do now if you know what right. well, I'll tell you um, I, I joined Sinn Féin at the age of 18 planning to change the world overnight right okay how'd that work out for you it didn't work out that well <laughs> but uh, the advice I would give to a 20 year old John O'Dowd is this that patience and organisation and planning pay off and that change does come but you have to work on it. Okay, pretty good. Yeah. And on that note, John O'Dowd, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Yeah. I know um, our listeners will take a lot away from this and thank you for your time and we wish you nothing, only success as you and Sinn Féin move forward. Thank you very much. Thank you.